everyone, and welcome to another thrilling adventure of Superman. I am your host, Michael Bradley, and this is episode 17 for the show. This time out, we'll be looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number 12. Before we get too into things, I wanted to draw your attention to Cayman Stoll's Superman video podcast. Cayman does a somewhat weekly video podcast where he talks about, real pretty much anything Superman. Um, he talks a lot about Smallville and Young Justice, or he may show off new additions to his Superman memorabilia collection, or talk about movie news, or pretty much just whatever you know comes across his mind. Just a little over a week ago, Kamen posted an interview he did with Douglas Myers, who formerly went by the name of Barry. Myers portrayed Bizarro in seven episodes of the Adventures of Superman television series from the late 80s and early 90s, as well as a character named Caliban in one Season 3 episode. Myers has the distinction of being the very first person to portray a live-action version of Bizarro, and to date, he's one of only two to be able to claim that, the other being Tom Welling in Season 7 of Smallville. Though, to be fair, the version Myers portrayed was much more like the comic book version than the one in Smallville. Anyway, it's a pretty extensive interview with Myers sharing his memories of working on the show and working with Gerard Christopher and Stacey Heiduck and just portraying the Bizarro character. He also talks about how he was cast in the role and other things that he's done with his career, both before Bizarro and since. The video interview is on YouTube, so there's not an easy URL to give, but I will be sure to put a link to that in the show notes. Kamen was lucky to be able to talk to him, and Myers seems like a really personable guy. So it's a really great interview, and I think you would enjoy it if you're a fan of the Superboy television series. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book, to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Every legend has a beginning. Okay, so like I said, this episode we are looking at Action Comics number 12. The book was released sometime around April 4th, 1939 and has a May 1939 cover date with a 10 cent price tag. The cover is by Fred Gardiner, and it shows a rocket ship shooting upward through the middle of the cover with Zaytara, Master Magician, in the foreground. It's sort of representational of something that happens in the Zaytara story this issue. It's a really nice cover, very colorful, and a rare thing in this era to see another feature plugged so prominently on the cover. 
This is the first cover of Action Comics to feature a strip inside the book other than Superman. All the covers to this point have either been generic or featured Superman. Zaytara was the second most popular strip in the book, and goes on to be the book's longest-running strip other than Superman, running until 1949 or 1950. Along the side of the cover is a black strip promoting the Superman feature inside, and also featuring an inset graphic of the familiar Joe Shuster-drawn image of Superman bursting chains with his chest, which debuted all the way back in Action Comics number 1. There's only a few more issues until Superman takes over the cover permanently, but until then, the ones that don't feature him will use this image to, pr to promote his presence in the book. And even when he does take over the cover permanently, they'll use this in the corner for about 80 issues or so, replacing the 64 pages of Thrills bubble that's been there since issue 5. Inside the book, our story has been titled both Traffic Safety and Superman Declares War on Reckless Drivers. It was written by Jerry Siegel with art by Joe Schuster, likely assisted by Paul Cassidy, and as always so far, Vin Sullivan was the editor. The splash panel for the story shows Superman ripping the main support cables off of a suspension bridge. Again, it's kind of a weird panel because it's something rather un-Superman-like. Although maybe not, given what we're about to see him do in the story. But there's just no indication of why he's doing it or anything. It's sort of awkwardly drawn as well because you only see Superman from the back. There's no money shot of the S-Shield, and you don't even really see his face, so it's not a very strong splash. The introduction this time is exactly the same as the one used back in Action Comics number 8, which was covered in episode 8 of the show. This marks the first time that one of these has been reused. This particular one, to my knowledge, isn't reused again after this, but there are others that will be reused several times in the next couple years' worth of stories. Our story begins with a group of looky-loos in front of the Daily Star building. When Clark Kent inquires about what's going on, a member of the crowd tells him that a pedestrian has been killed by a reckless driver. Clark works his way to the front of the crowd and realizes that not only was the person killed, but that the man is his friend, Charlie Martin. And no, we've never heard of Char of, of Charlie. We've never heard of Clark having friends, much less one named Charlie, but that's not the point. Clark is, understandably, pretty upset by this, so he calls the mayor and asks why the city has one of the worst traffic situations in the country. The mayor agrees that it is, indeed, bad, but just shrugs his shoulders and says that there's not much he or anyone can do about it. Clark, of course, disagrees, and so later he heads home and transforms into the Amazing Superman and says that since no one else is, he's going to do something about it. We then get a very dynamic series of panels as Superman leaps out the window of his apartment. He grabs a flagpole and does a flip to swing around, sending him in the other direction, right towards the roof of radio station WVUX, then crashing in through the window onto a very unsuspecting office worker. Superman demands to be let into one of the studios, but a guy tells him that there's a program being broadcast and he can't go in. Superman's having none of that, of course, so he knocks the guy down and proceeds to push in the door of the studio with one hand. He shoves the announcer out of the way and warns him to let the control engineer know that if he tries to take him off the air, he may suffer some unpleasantries.
Superman then grabs the mic and begins addressing the listening audience. And I guess it's pretty safe to say at this point that Superman is known by a more significant amount of the populace than in those earliest stories. We really haven't had any references lately to Superman being a myth or that people you know, just think he's a made-up story. While some of the dialogue later in the story indicates that he's not a household name yet, he's clearly becoming more well-known because when Superman takes the mic, he says that it's, quote, a warning from Superman, and no one says, uh, okay, who are you? <laughs> so Superman is speaking over the radio, and he tells the people that the death rate from the auto accidents is on the rise, and the result of both reckless driving and inefficient automobiles. He says that more people have been killed as a result of auto accidents than were killed in the World War. Obviously, this is World War I, since World War II hasn't happened yet. But doesn't that number seem a little high? I looked up on Wikipedia, and it says that more than 16.5 million people were killed during World War I. Just U.S. casualties were around 117,000. According to one report I found, which I will link to in the show notes, you've got to add up multiple years of motor vehicle fatalities to get even close to that number of U.S. casualties. So, it seems like Superman was fudging his numbers just a bit. Or maybe he was just being hyperbolic. Anyway, it, it doesn't really matter. The point is, Superman's mad as heck, and he's not going to take it anymore. And he says that from now on, he's declaring war on reckless drivers, and that those driving unsafely will answer to him. Suddenly, a pair of police officers bust into the studio, intent on stopping Superman. But since he's finished with his warning, Superman bids him farewell and crashes through the wall to make his escape, causing further damage to the radio station, which really has done nothing wrong. But sadly, it's only the beginning of the destructive path raged by Superman this issue, because after leaving the radio station, Superman heads towards the impound lot of the county jail. It's actually a cool panel, because you see Superman swooping down in a very flight-like pose. And like I mentioned back in Episode 9, even though he's not technically flying, we are going to start seeing Superman doing a lot more of these gravity-defying acrobatics. Flipping around the flagpole at the beginning of the issue was a good example of that. And here's another good example as Superman swooshes down into the lot. And we'll be seeing a lot more of these types of things in the coming months. So Superman lands in the lot and after a few quips begins tossing the cars all around, smashing them to pieces. And he seems to be having a lot of fun doing it. How wanton destruction of impounded vehicles aids Superman's war on bad drivers, I don't know. But he destroys the entire lot of cars, despite the guards' attempts to stop him. Proud of his handiwork, he leaps off as the guards shoot at him, warning them to be careful or they might hurt someone with the guns. Yes, the guy who is just recklessly tossing around cars is telling someone else to be careful. A little later, Superman arrives at a used car lot. And as normally happens when one goes to a used car lot, he is immediately accosted by a salesman trying to hawk the nearest junker. Lucky for him, it happens that Superman is in the market for a used car. Several, in fact, as Superman puts it. The salesman shows him one car. He says it's a bit old, but a real bargain. And Superman replies, yeah, for a wreck. 
The salesman gets incensed at the insult, but Superman just lays it on thicker, saying the guy has no right to call them cars, because what they really are is accidents waiting to happen. He then proceeds to grab the car and smash it to pieces, offering a half-hearted apology for the blow to the guy's pocketbook, but then continues his destruction by destroying all of the rest of the guy's inventory with the typical reasoning of Superman that it's for the best. <laughs> Apparently, Superman's destructive path doesn't end there, because before long, the authorities are flooded with calls concerning Superman's assaults. They receive so many calls, in fact, that the police department doesn't even have the manpower to cover them all. We get a panel of the switchboard at the police department dealing with all the calls, and we get one of the guys saying that Superman threw his car on top of his garage, and then we get a really bizarre and slightly creepy panel of a guy on the phone with the cops saying, and I quote, Rush a policeman here at once. There's a man under my bed. It's Superman. I hope. Now, <laughs> this panel is... Why is Superman under this guy's bed? And if it's not Superman, who is it? Why is anyone under his bed? And why does he hope that it is Superman if Superman is causing such problems throughout the city? It just makes no sense. And it's... It's rather funny in its bizarre nature. I thought maybe Siegel was trying to show that Superman's actions were causing panic and hysteria, but that doesn't really explain why he says that he hopes that it is Superman under his bed. But that bizarreness aside, we cut to the mayor's office, where the mayor is chewing out the chief of police for not being able to rein in Superman. Apparently, the mayor has forgotten about the debacle caused when 100% Riley tried to apprehend Superman, and the mayor tells the chief that he's got 24 hours to either capture Superman or resign. The chief pleads with the mayor, saying they're doing all they can. Superman may only be one man, but quote, What a man! Meanwhile, Superman is hanging out on a nearby rooftop watching for any potential bad drivers when he sees a car hurtling down the street weaving in and out of traffic. The driver is clearly drunk. Superman jumps off the roof and positions himself in front of the car and stands firm with a come and get it. As the car bears down on our hero, Superman grabs the car, lifting it high overhead, and begins running down the road right into traffic, seeking to give the driver a taste of his own medicine. Superman leaps through the traffic and over the oncoming cars, leaving the driver inside the car he's carrying scared half to death and swearing off ever drinking again. And probably scaring the drivers in the other cars too, even though, again, they've done nothing but dare to be on the road when Superman is trying to, quote-unquote, help. Superman gets to a bridge and, with the car still overhead, leaps off the bridge and onto another nearby bridge, before finally setting the car down and checking on the driver, only to find that the poor guy has fainted. Superman supposes that the guy has learned his lesson and turns to leave, only to get slammed into by an oncoming car and knocked to the side of the road as the car speeds off. And I kind of like this, because it gives us more information about Superman's powers, that even though he's able to, you know, shrug off gunfire and throw cars around, he's not an immovable mountain. 
if he gets blindsided by a powerful enough force, it can knock him for a loop. Superman's uninjured by the hit and run, but it still clearly knocks the stuffing out of him. So, anyway, as the car, which, by the way, is a convertible, speeds off, the passenger tells the driver to stop, but the driver refuses and floors it to get out of Dodge. Superman takes after the car, easily catching up to it, and jumps into the back seat, which freaks out both the driver and the passenger, making them think they've seen a ghost. Superman goes along with their mistake and happily tells them that they've left his body, crushed, twisted, and broken, on the road, and he plans to haunt them as long as they continue to drive recklessly. Superman then leaps from the car, laughing and giddy beyond all reason over his actions. So, after taking care of former reckless drivers, people who sell junk cars, strange men in their beds, and exactly one guy who actually is posing a danger on the roads, what's next? Well, obviously, auto manufacturers. Because clearly, it's better to take care of the people who only have a, you know, a tangential connection to the issue instead of those who actually pose an imminent threat. Or something. With that in mind, Superman pays a visit to Bait Motor Company, relishing in how he'll enjoy what he's going to do. He busts into the office of the company's owner and tells Bates that statistics show that his company's vehicles are involved in the most accidents. Despite Bates' protest that it's just bad luck, Superman tells him that, it's, that his company makes junk cars out of junk parts and is costing human lives. Superman then walks out into the manufacturing area and destroys the factory's manufacturing equipment, costing millions of dollars in damage and hundreds if not thousands of jobs. Factory workers flee for their lives as Superman gleefully trashes the plant. Not just the machinery, but the building as well. And when Superman's done, what's left is basically just a big pile of rubble that looks like the remnants of a war zone. A little while later, back at WVUX, the same radio station from the beginning of the issue, a masonry worker has just finished repairing the wall that Superman burst through making his escape. But his repair work is soon rendered moot as Superman busts through the wall again. Superman then enters the studio and grabs the announcer who is in the middle of reporting on Superman's earlier break-in. He muzzles and manhandles the announcer and takes over the mic again, issuing a reminder to the listening audience that he's serious about his pursuit of reckless drivers. A little later, Superman is out once more scouting for reckless drivers and is happy to see that a policeman has pulled over someone who had been speeding. He's satisfied that his campaign is working, However, he is dismayed when he realizes, thanks to his super hearing, that the driver is attempting to bribe his way out of the ticket. The officer is about to take the money when he spots Superman giving him the stink eye and has a quick change of heart, and punches the driver in the face with a swift right hook for trying to bribe him. Up the road a piece, Superman spots a stretch of road winding dangerously through the mountains and in what is perhaps Superman's first truly benevolent action all issue, Superman tears through the Rocky Mountain, clearing a path for drivers, eliminating the deadly curve. Back at the mayor's office, the mayor continues to berate the police chief for not catching Superman. The mayor then storms out, fuming to himself about why he ever ran for office in the first place, before jumping in his car and speeding off. Apparently, the mayor's got a hot new ride and has a need for speed. Superman sees the mayor race off and chases after him. Catching up to him as easy as he did the hit-and-run driver, 
Superman jumps into the car and forces himself behind the wheel, somehow all while the car is moving. Superman tells the mayor that he, if he likes speed, he'll give him speed, and slams the accelerator to the floor. The car's speed builds and builds, and the mayor, naturally, is freaking out, screaming that Superman is going to kill them both. Superman just tells him that he might as well, because the mayor doesn't seem to worry about killing others, and then explains that by not enforcing speed laws, he's dooming many people to die. He then grabs the mayor and jumps from the speeding car, apparently just leaving the car to go careening into who knows what, maybe, a, maybe an orphanage or something. Superman probably thinks those kids had it coming. But with the mayor under his arm, he leaps through the city, finally landing in the window of a city morgue. Once inside the morgue, it's a double panel, which is somewhat rare for this time period. Superman shows the mayor the maimed and broken bodies of all the accident victims. The men, Superman claims, that the mayor has killed with his limp-wristed enforcement of the law. The mayor sees the error of his ways and promises that from then on he'll do everything in his power to see that the all traffic laws are strictly enforced. Superman returns to his apartment and changes back to Clark Kent. And I hate to interrupt, but this is really, really odd. There's a photo on Clark Kent's dresser, and I have to wonder who this is a photo of. At this point, we've not been introduced to anyone in Clark Kent's life other than co-workers. Even his good friend, the dear departed Charlie Martin, was just introduced this issue, after he'd been 86 We are close to a major revelation about Clark's life, and those of you who are familiar with Superman, or if you've been following John Wilson's Golden Age Superman show, you probably know what that is. But that and these two things in this story, it just makes me wonder if it's coincidence, or if Siegel and Schuster weren't intentionally trying to kind of expand on the private life of Clark Kent, so to speak. Anyway, Superman changes back to Clark Kent, then heads to the Daily Star, wondering to himself how long it will take for the mayor to put his words into action. Once at the office, the editor tells him that the mayor has announced, quote, a great traffic improvement drive, and he wants Clark to cover the story now. So Clark heads back out to his car, only to find a police officer writing him a ticket. It seems that Clark has parked illegally, and now, thanks to the mayor's new stance, folks can't get away with that kind of thing anymore. I am really kind of torn on this story. On one hand, I like seeing Superman deal with subject matters like this. It may seem quite a bit out of Superman's wheelhouse as we know him today, but for this time in the Golden Age, this is the type of thing we've seen Superman dealing with. It's nice seeing him, you know, bounding through the streets with his square-jawed, take-no-lit toughness, tearing down buildings and giving people the, the just desserts in ways that you or I might only wish we could. But on the other, it's really unsettling to see Superman take such glee in wanton destruction of property and harassing people. There's really nothing in this story that Superman does where we haven't seen him do similar things in previous stories, but we've never seen him take such delight in doing it. He's never had a problem tearing down tenements or dragging people through the city skyline, but here he's just having so much fun with it that he sounds like a kid on a playground. 
In Mark Wade's introduction to Superman the Action Comics Archives Volume 1, he wrote about his first experiences reading those earliest Superman stories. And he said, I thought I knew everything about Superman. Then I read the stories reprinted in this volume, many of them for the first time, and my eyes widened with every page turn. If I expected to glean here the adventures of a calm, well-reasoned guardian of the system, I was clearly flipping through the wrong book. Within these pages, I met a head-bashing Superman who took no prisoners, who made his own law and enforced it with his fists, who gleefully intimidated his foes with a wicked grin and a baleful glare, a Superman who reveled in his own strength, who clearly enjoyed raising a little hell, and who didn't care who got in his way as he bounded through Metropolis, metting out his own brand of justice. Was I surprised? When I see bullets bouncing off Superman's chest, I don't expect them to be coming from the guns of policemen. Whoever this was in the red cape, he was no super cop. He was a super anarchist. How could he have started out so different? I don't know. I I enjoyed the story more than I thought I would before I reread it, because I didn't remember liking it all that much before. But now that I'm thinking about it more, I think I may have confused it with another story that comes a little later, because there's a particular panel that I have in my head that wasn't in the story. So I must have confused it with something else. So that said, I really can't say how I felt about it before. But now, yeah, it's okay. Kind of just your average Superman story, you know, doling out his form of justice on the ills of society. But I do find the delight that he takes in it very unsettling. And I think I'll be glad when we finally move past this extremely hardline Superman. I would have liked to have seen a throwback to one or more of the earlier stories where Superman dealt with drunk drivers, especially the story from Action Comics number 4. Since that story started off with Superman chasing down a drunk driver that had hit and killed a pedestrian. But continuity and referencing past stories being what it was in the Golden Age, I'm really not surprised that Siegel didn't reference it. The art in this story is okay, but kind of inconsistent concerning Superman's shield, because all throughout the story it changes size. Sometimes it's so small that it looks like Superman could cover it with his hand, while other times it takes up a good half of his chest, which is larger than we've ever seen it before now, though not as large as it's typically drawn in modern times. And there's a few panels where there's no shield at all. It's just, you know, Superman's plain chest. There's also several places where there are coloring issues as well, with Superman's boots or trunks inexplicably turning yellow for a panel. Uh, but other than that, the art is pretty much typical of what we've seen before now. At the end of the story, the final panel is an ad promoting not the future adventures of Superman, but a brand new strip appearing over in Detective Comics, The Batman. The ad shows a nice Bob Kane-drawn headshot of Batman as he appeared in the earliest stories. And according to the information at Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, Detective Comics number 27 likely came out two weeks after Action Comics number 12, which I suppose technically makes this the first place the public got a look at Batman. Normally, this is the part in the show where I would talk a little bit more about Batman and his earliest adventures, but if I can give a bit of completely shameless self-promotion, as I've mentioned, 
Michael Kaiser and I are currently covering Batman's adventures from the beginning on Legends of the Batman. So head on over to BatmanLegends.com and check out episodes of that show if you're interested in following along with the adventures of the Dark Knight. This Superman story has only seen two reprints, Superman the Action Comics Archives Volume 1 and Superman Chronicles Volume 1. We're nearing the end of the stories contained in that first Chronicles volume. We've only got the World's Fair comic, which will be the focus two episodes from now, an issue of Action Comics, and the material from Superman number one. So, very cool. Come on, I have an idea that Batman should look into this. And don't forget Robin! Other features in this issue of Action Comics are the normal fare. We've got Scoop Scanlon, Pep Morgan, Marco Polo, Tex Thompson, Chuck Dawson, and Zaytara. There's also a filler page on the inside front cover. And they ran several of these uh, in issues we've talked about and, you know, in non-Action Comics issues. Most, well, I shouldn't say most, a lot of them were written and illustrated by Sheldon Moldoff. And they would just have a variety of trivia or neat facts or, you know, did you know type of things. This particular one has a very well-rendered drawing of a boxer and a fact stating that a punch thrown by a top-notch fighter travels at 140 miles per hour, which I found interesting given the uh, Superman boxing story that we looked at two episodes ago. As for other comics out around this time, it was a pretty big month. We had All-American Comics number 2, with a hodgepodge cover featuring panels from four of the strips inside the book. This issue also sees the debut of a new feature, one-page reprints of the Believe It or Not newspaper strip, written by Robert L. Ripley. As for the Red, White, and Blue story, it isn't known if Jerry Siegel wrote this particular issue's tale, but William Smith still gets the artist credit inked by Stan Ashmeyer this time. Another All-American book, Movie Comics Number no. 2, adapts Stagecoach, starring John Wayne, and continues to adapt Scouts to the Rescue with Jackie Cooper. More Fun Comics gets a new strip with this month's issue, Biff Bronson, written and drawn by Joseph Solman. And apparently in the Radio Squad story by Siegel & Schuster, 
Sandy and his partners dress in drag. So, Jimmy Olsen, watch out. <laughs> On a related note, does anyone happen to know when the first story was where Jimmy dresses in drag? I'm relatively confident that it was from the Silver Age, and I've had it in mind to try and track that down at some point, but haven't uh, haven't really thought about it when I've had the issues nearby. So if anyone knows, I would appreciate it if you could just drop me an email and let me know. Anyway, we also had, as I mentioned earlier, Detective Comics number 27, with the first appearance of the Batman. The Slam Bradley story in that issue is cut to nine pages, but will return to its normal 13 starting next issue. Adventure Comics number 38 had the final Todd Hunter strip by Jim Chambers. There was also another issue of All-American Comics, this one being the third issue of that title. It had the first appearance of Ma Hunkel in the Sheldon Mayer Scribbly strip. Ma Hunkel is a somewhat obscure but much-loved character and often considered one of the first superhero parodies. The character will continue to feature in the Scribbly strip, but is more famous, or I should perhaps say infamously known, for donning a pair of long johns and a cooking pot for a helmet and fighting crime as the original Red Tornado. The character was even given a cameo with the Justice Society of America when that team debuts in All-American Comics, and later stories reveal that she was given honorary membership status. The character fell into obscurity after the Golden Age, but Jeff Johns' JSA stories in the last decade established that Ma Hunkel now serves as the caretaker for the JSA Brownstone in Manhattan, and her granddaughter Maxine has taken up the heroic mantle and uses her wind-controlling abilities that she got due to some sort of shenanigans from T.O. Morrow to fight crime alongside the modern-day Justice Society as Cyclone. And the last book from National was New York World's Fair Comics, a 96-page book sold at the 1939 World's Fair. And I will talk more about that in uh, two episodes from now, when we cover the Superman story in it. There were also a couple other books out around this time worth noting. The first was Feature Funnies number 20, which was the final issue of a book from Centaur. After this issue... That book is, or that title, is bought by Everett M. Busy Arnold and renamed to Feature Comics, with issue number 21 to Kickstart Quality Comics, a major comic book publisher in the Golden Age. And we can talk more about that, you know, when those books come around. The other was Wonder Comics number 20 from Fox Publications, which contained the first and only appearance of Wonder Man, a Superman knockoff created by Will Eisner at the behest of Victor Fox. Wonder Man is Nebish Fred Carson, who is given a magic ring by a Tibetan monk, which grants him powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. DC quickly slapped a lawsuit on Fox over the character, giving Wonder Man the distinction of being the first comic book character to be taken out by a copyright infringement lawsuit. It was also just a small sample of how fiercely DC and National would be over the Superman copyright. And I'll put a few links in the show notes for those wanting to learn more about Wonder Man and the ensuing lawsuit. It's rather interesting and historically significant because, I mean, the story goes that Fox went to Eisner and basically said, make me a Superman character. So that was a pretty clear-cut case, but... 
it's my personal opinion that had they not won the suit, DC would have had a tougher time or at least not been as zealous to go after Captain Marvel like they did in the 40s. Anyway, there's a lot of information out there, including one site that has the judge's decision with comparisons between the sole Wonder Man story and Superman's adventures that had been published up to that time. So you can check that out and see the similarities for yourself. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Batgirl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Batgirl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. All right, folks, that does it for another episode. I want to thank you once again for joining me. Next time out, we will be looking at the fifth storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip, which has been titled Skyscraper of Death. As always, if you have comments or questions or feedback, you can contact me at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. I also invite you to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com, where you can find show notes for this and all episodes that I've posted, as well as other Superman-related postings from time to time. If you wish to subscribe to the show, at the site you'll also find links to the show's RSS feed and iTunes. You will also find there the link to the show's Facebook page. If you like the show on Facebook, you can get updates whenever I post new episodes or have other show-related news. The Thrilling Adventures of Superman is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And that's home to many excellent Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts, so be sure to check that out. I also invite you to check out my other show, Legends of the Batman, where Michael Kaiser and I are going through every single Batman appearance that we can find, starting with his earliest appearance in 1939. The URL for that is batmanlegends.com. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thanks again for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman, everyone, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye!